Hello, this is Chris Ryan. I'm an editor at TheRinger.com. Hello, this is Chuck Klosterman. I'm a friend of Chris Ryan and The Ringer. And this is Music Exists, a podcast where we talk about how we think about music. Yeah, this is not a podcast where we tell you what music to listen to or we necessarily comment on what's happening in the culture right now or what you should be listening to tomorrow before your friends do. This is a podcast about thinking about music even when it's not playing. Yeah, how does music shape the world you see around you, the world you feel around you? How does it make you feel about yourself? Yeah, particularly if the music that makes you feel things about yourself is Steely Dan or Black Sabbath. Or Radiohead. Yeah, that happens. That comes up a lot. Music Exists, a podcast about Radiohead. (laughs) (laughs) Available exclusively on Spotify. David, according to the Washingtonian, the Washington Post has asked its journalist who covered CPAC to self-quarantine for seven days. All right. Now, this is where I put the disclaimer in. There's nothing funny about coronavirus. Just just this is this is how you have to preface the jokes. Duly noted. Duly noted. What I want to know is. What other events should journalists self-quarantine after covering? <laughs> I mean, any political rally, really. I mean, that's just more of a more of a moral cleansing is needed, I think, after that. Um, if you, I mean, I, I, any outdoor music festival. I mean, you should just like like yeah. sit in a sit in a, a mild vat of acid for a couple of days after like Bonnaroo. I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. What do you have any? Do you have any answers to this? Yeah, well, I guess I just sort of read it as like events I don't love when journalists cover at all, you know. So I, that's how I kind of <laughs> like like the upfronts from TV. And again, nothing against it, but it's just where everyone's tweeting at the same time, and I'm like, I'm sorry, am I missing something by not being at the upfronts? Right. Is this, <laughs> like the Consumer Electronics Show is another one. Like what? What? What's going <laughs> right. on here? Uh, I guess I could have said South by Southwest, but that was just canceled uh, due to coronavirus. So. I know. Like, everything's being canceled. We are the disease that dare not speak its name of media <laughs> podcasts. This is the Press Box, a part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Hello, media consumers. Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker here. Lots and lots to get to today, including the puzzle of Bernie Sanders's, um energetic online fan base. We'll also talk about the controversy involving Ronan Farrow and Woody Allen's memoir, plus Brian Williams attempts math and the overworked Twitter joke of the week. But David, let's start with a preview of Tuesday night's democratic primaries. There are six primaries stretching from Mississippi to Washington state, but I want us to focus on Michigan because it's a microcosm of the Joe Biden versus Bernie Sanders matchup. From the Biden side first, sitting on what appears to be about an 80 delegate lead, what Biden is trying to do is overwhelm voters with this notion of inevitability. Sunday, he got the endorsement of Kamala Harris. Monday, it was Cory Booker. Both will campaign with Biden Monday night in Detroit. Am I wrong in thinking that this is the mode of campaigning that is Biden's comfort zone? Forget the issue positions, and in some cases, please genuinely forget some of those votes I took in the past. (laughs) Biden is saying, vote for me because 
I'm me. I'm Mr. Inevitable. And that's actually the case he wants to make to Democratic voters. Yeah, I mean, it's Mr. Inevitable, but also just like Mr. Likeable, right? Mr. Friendly, Mr. Mr. Uh, can't we all get along? And and certainly by uh, trotting out almost every one of his former opponents um, in a show of camaraderie that that goes to all those points. Mr. Acceptable, I think we would have also uh, taken there, right? You know, I'm I'm sort of good enough, and and that that to me is like. It'll be interesting to see how far that takes him, because when I was listening to all these Biden endorsement spiels, there were a couple of notes that I kept hearing over and over again. Listen to Cory Booker Monday morning on CBS saying something that a lot of Biden supporters are saying this week. I'm enthusiastic about this decision. I'm determined uh, to beat Donald Trump. I know he is a leader, not just to beat Donald Trump. There's a very George W. Bush in 2000 vibe there. We're going to restore honor and dignity to the White House. Mm hmm. And my question about that is, didn't we learn that Democrats do better in 2018 and otherwise when they say health care, health care, health care, not I'm going to stop the bad man who is very bad? Sure. I mean, I think any political party is almost certainly going to do better when they have a mission, when they have a, a you know, a cause. And the Democrats have often been more on the defensive even from a campaign perspective. I think this one's a this one's an interesting one because it's you know the restore dignity to the White House, restore honor blah blah blah. Um it's just a you know it's just a vague way to say to to you know imply all of the accusations criminal and otherwise that have been leveled against Trump during his presidency and during his campaign. Um and I think that you know it's it's evidence of an effort to not get too in the weeds with saying you know, this guy should have been impeached and kicked out of office. You're like, let's, you know, let's let's do it with the vote. You know, instead of instead of doing instead of making it too, I guess, controversial, too argumentative that this is, you know, restoring dignity is just sort of a way to talk around that. But I think you're right. I think that um, the more they make this election about Trump, the more uh, they risk. I mean, as I mean, I, I guess it, it could cut either way, but I think the more they make the, it about Trump, the less obviously it's going to be about anything proactive they're going to do to the benefit of their voters. Yeah, I I think that's the early. There are a lot of risks about nominating Biden, which I think we'll probably get into a little bit more on Thursday's show. But to me, one of the other one of the big ones is he seems like he kind of wants to run the Hillary 2016 playbook against Trump. That is naturally where either he's going or his advisors are taking him. And maybe it will work because Joe Biden isn't Hillary Clinton. Maybe that's what he's figuring, which has certainly helped him in the Democratic primary. But I just that that's scary to me. And and this idea that you'll get caught up again. What does Donald Trump want you to get caught up in battling him on his own insane terms? And sure. To me, the much more vulnerable points are protect your health care, protect your benefits, raise taxes on the rich. Just going down those basic issue positions seems like a much more fruitful path. For sure it does. Um, I mean, you can kind of look at it from both sides. You know, one is, I mean, you, you said that Biden's going, I mean, using the Hillary playbook and and certainly um, there's a, you should, you should 
have a lot of trepidation when you're looking at a candidate who's, I mean, the, these institutional candidates, you know, I mean, these candidate people have been politicians for their entire lives, uh, you know, it makes sense that they would sort of default to the same position in a lot of ways, especially in, in, in running for office. Um, and, you know, you can make a logical case that Trump's victory four years ago was so marginal, you know, as shocking as it was, as, as, as surprising as some of the states that he won were, you know, it, it, the difference between winning and losing could have been a couple of campaign offices in Michigan or Wisconsin or, you know what I mean? It's, it's, and, and mobilizing the vote, you know, I mean, we can, can materialize in a lot of different ways, but all this is to say, you can see some, you can see Joe Biden telling himself and the people around him agreeing that we just have to do one and a half percent better. And we've got this thing in the bag, you know? And, and so in that sense, okay, maybe you do hit the same notes. Maybe you do kind of play the anti-Trump greatest hits. But I think that the thing, I think the point you made about this being exactly what Trump wants, it's it's hard to escape this sort of feeling that that's even sort of a metaphor for the, for, you know, the actual campaign at large. Just like you want, like if we're fighting this battle on Trump's terms, I don't think we can expect to know, I don't think we can claim any secret knowledge about, about voter numbers, about, about, you know, what, like the, the, the small details we're going to need to do to win. I think that, 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 that would just lead us to the potential of another shocking quote unquote, shocking Trump win <laughs> down the road, you know? Totally. And it's a note you've seen sounded by Democrats during this primary. When Biden says, I want to, I want things to go back to normal, right? I want to go back to those days when we can work with Republicans across the aisle. Look at all that great legislation I passed. Look at all those Republican senators I was friends with. Look, you know, what's going to happen when somebody like me gets in office and the Republican Party will cut recover its senses. And there's a whole bunch of people that are afraid that we're just post-normal now in America. They, those old things won't work anymore, right? And Trump, I think, is is counting on this idea that People are almost not just post-normal, but post-dignity, that that stuff doesn't matter like it used to. It's not a killer of campaigns like it once was. Mm -hmm. And again, if you're if you're a Democrat and you desperately want to be Trump, that's got to be number one, you know, number. I don't know. There's a couple of things about Biden, but let's 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 say top five on your list of worries that he's just going to run the wrong kind of campaign. And that there's going to be nobody within that campaign apparatus or nobody that's sort of, you know, poked their head above the ground yet that's going to talk him out of it. The other thing, David, just in terms of the primary, and I think Michigan specifically, that we can think about with Biden is how much has changed since the Hillary-Bernie matchup of 2016. Remember, Bernie's been the one saying, we want a one-on-one because we think Biden is another feckless centrist whom we can beat on the issues. Here's the problem. Part of what powered Bernie in 2016, it seems pretty obvious now, at least partially, was that some voters had this personal animus toward Hillary Clinton as much as they did somebody with Hillary Clinton's issue positions. Yes. The other related part of that is in 2016, the idea of Donald Trump being coming president of the United States still seemed like kind of a joke. It's not now. It's a more present danger in that makes a candidate like Joe Biden a lot more acceptable, a lot more exciting. I don't know if that word ever quite applies to him than it did a candidate like Hillary back in 2016. What do you think of that? Yeah, 
again, I, I'm I'm reluctant to like uh, try to get too deep in the weeds about you know electability points because I don't think it's I think that the, the you can just as easily take the point of view that um, as sort of chaotic and supremely abnormal as the Trump presidency has been from where you or I are sitting. I think that you could probably make the case that there's a lot of there are a lot of borderline fence sitting Trump voters or people that, that didn't vote for Trump by a hair out there who look at it and say, well, he didn't start a war with Iran. Like that's like you guys were saying, you know, like the economy mm-hmm. until until coronavirus, economy's doing pretty My well. Four hundred one k went up. Yeah, but and so and so, I mean, if you can couple everything that Trump had going for him in the previous in the last election with a not insignificant amount of stability and economic prosperity. Um, I, it makes me really uncomfortable to think that we're going, that that we're going to have a a candidate who's, you know, 5% more likable. And like I mentioned earlier, have a couple extra field offices and a couple, you know, a thousand more people knocking on doors and that's going to make all the difference. Well, it might, I mean, it really, really might, but that's a, that that sounds a whole lot like a campaign that's hasn't quite reckoned with, you know, the year twenty twenty and what it's going to mean to campaign. I mean, there's, I mean, really, it's 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 overly simplistic, but I mean, Biden has never debated anybody like Trump. Nobody's debated anybody like Trump unless they deba- debated Trump, and it would only take one of these what are inevitably going to be incredibly high rated primetime spectacles to just. Yes disqualify literally any candidate from office and there's just no old school politicking there's no vote tabulating there's no you know data analysis that can counteract that so you know i i would i would caution any campaign that thinks they're going to run the safe route to beating donald trump yeah there there there's no safe route <laughs> the the fire door is closed right you yeah. just have to you're going to have to win um, to your point about him being 5% more likable, how about 45% more normalized since 2016? Remember when Remember when the mainstream Republicans didn't go to the GOP convention last time around? Yeah. <laughs> Think that's going to be a problem this time? I don't. Um, he's just much more, you know, he's much more established as, as crazy and chaotic as his presidency has been. So that's the Biden part of Michigan. Let's talk about what Bernie's doing to try to win Michigan. Basically, he's doing everything. Uh, He's throwing the kitchen sink at it. Remember Biden's Iraq war vote, he's out there saying this week. Remember Biden musing about social security cuts. Bernie has gone after Biden's record on abortion, his support for the Hyde Amendment, his support for don't ask, don't tell. Bernie's campaign spokesman tells the Washington Post it is a chance to show just how outraged voters in swing states can get about Joe Biden's record, which is pretty much putting it out there. But the big thing Bernie's hitting Biden on Michigan is free trade. He's reminding a state whose working class is skeptical of free trade, to Mm -hmm. put it nicely, that Biden was Mr. NAFTA. Listen to Bernie's new commercial. 
I've been a union auto worker since 2008. The community has been decimated by trade deals. Only one candidate for president has consistently opposed every disastrous trade deal, and that candidate is Bernie Sanders. The banksters that have been robbing us blind and stealing our pensions and destroying our communities, they have something to worry about. This is a man of conviction, a man of integrity, a man that is going to stand up for you no matter what. That's why I personally support Bernie Sanders. I'm Bernie Sanders, and I approve this message. What you can't see there is video of Biden and Trump as the bad guys in that ad and then Bernie standing on the picket line with the workers. Is that going to be enough to sort of reassemble Bernie's winning coalition from 2016 in Michigan? Um, it feels weird to say yes after we just kind of had these big zoom out, big picture conversation about what it's going to take to win a general election. But I do think that there's an incredible power to that. And I don't. And to say, is this going to be enough? I mean, uh, w- what Bernie Sanders needs is to win in Michigan. I mean, and that's and yes. that could and that Full could stop and that could right that could write the campaign on its own or it could or it could not be enough, you know, but like but he he has to do that. And certainly um, in terms of just shifting the conversation, shifting the the narrative, which is just, you know, I guess that's what we talk about on the show. But it's it's always a little bit makes you a little bit uncomfortable but 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 he does have to shift the narrative people are you know joe biden's going to be trotting out another former candidate or former president at every stop along the road for the next month and and uh you know bernie sanders has to do something to keep moving the needle in his favor yeah i mean to me his biggest problem is the coalition that biden put together on super tuesday which as we saw was overwhelming support with african-american voters very strong support with suburban voters and cutting into Bernie's base with the working class, though specifically the white working class enough. And that's kind of like the old Obama coalition, right? And once you have that, where do the Bernie votes come from? I guess it could be that overwhelming turnout he talks about with young voters, but we haven't seen that yet, right? We haven't seen it on the scale that Bernie Sanders says is going to happen at. And when you look at Bernie's whole pitch, even in Michigan, Mm -hmm. Ruby Kramer at BuzzFeed had this note. She said Sanders had a speech prepared specifically on race and Biden to deliver Saturday night. But after speaking with the panelists backstage, including Cornell West, decided to stick to his usual stump speech and panel discussion. So essentially, there is buried in there somewhere an admission that says, I'm thinking I might just get crushed with African-American voters Mm -hmm. and I'm trying to make that up somewhere else. And that's the story in Michigan. And it's also the story with him nationally, right? I'm going to get crushed in these primaries in the deep South, but then I have to beat Biden badly somewhere else. Where's that going to come from? I don't know the answer to that. And I think that seems like his biggest problem right now. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned a second ago about how he hadn't been turning out, you know, the the hordes of of you know n- new young voters uh, that that his campaign projected, and at least not to the degree that you know that that some people assumed. And 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 I think we have to be clear eyed about that, right? I mean, the same way that we were sort of giving the Biden campaign uh, just criticism before they won South Carolina to, by saying, you know, you, you got to win something, you know, you can't just keep kicking the can down the road. I mean, you, you do have to perform. Um, I think that, you know, I mean, 
the 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 race speech or the non-existent the vanishing race speech um was an interesting moment for the campaign i think bigger than just the you know how locating the voters i mean it's it's kind of hard to to parse whether or not you should read that decision as a campaign being fleet-footed and reactive or just being like hopelessly misguided to be pulling something so significant at the last second but uh, yeah i mean it's not misguided campaigns have to get votes that's what they got to do but at some point when you're just not connecting with black voters you know i think i think you have to look inward a little bit and not just try to replace and not just try to kind of you know gimmick the electorate but you know maybe maybe that's not one of their concerns right now yeah, well, it's it's late, right? You saw him. He canceled yeah. a rally in Mississippi, right, to go to Michigan, which just makes Michigan even more important. And that's what mm-hmm. I was going to stay next is that there is very much for the Bernie Sanders campaign a last stand quality to this primary, not just tomorrow, Tuesday, but the Michigan primary specifically. Now, it doesn't mean the primary campaign is going to end. doesn't mean he doesn't have any chance to win, but when Biden's polls look really good in Mississippi and other states voting Tuesday, it seems likely to follow the other states in the deep South and giving him a big victory. His polls look really good in Missouri. Then Bernie's campaign, both in terms of delegates and just symbolically feels like he needs a win in Michigan. And by the way, as Nate Silver points out, the next round of primaries on Tuesday, March 17th are even worse for Bernie. Florida, Ohio, Arizona, and Illinois. So this is it. Now, if you talk to Bernie people, they'll say, we've heard all this before. In 2016, our campaign was allegedly dead in the water. We were trailing by 20 points in Michigan polls, and Bernie won it anyway. So I guess, and and by the way, the the polls out of Michigan the last last couple of hours and the last couple of days have had Biden anywhere up from 15 points to like 40 points. So that's that's the hope at this point that the polls are missing Bernie support in Michigan once again, that he can win that, eke out delegates there, win in the western states that are voting on Tuesday, Washington, Idaho, and North Dakota, and then still have this path to the nomination, or at least a path th- to continuing for another week. That's it. I mean, it's 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 the path, right? If he has, if he can get through Tuesday with a viable um, claim that he could still win the nomination outright, uh, then I think it becomes a real dogfight, right? Then it be. I mean, I think I think that the I think Super Tuesday shifted the calculus, uh, or at least it shifted the prospects in in most voters' minds pretty significantly. I don't think it's, and honestly, I don't think that a lot of the polls. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put a lot of stock in any of the polls right now um, beyond this Tuesday because I think that it's, it's all so heavily influenced by national media and by perception. Um, if he, if, if Bernie can have a, if Bernie can do well enough, um, then I think that that'll mean a, that that could potentially mean everything else. I mean, that that functionally he's neck and neck, and and then we, then it's a whole new race. I can't help but keep thinking it's still Joe Biden, <laughs> right? For all the for all the potential upside, there's just an enormous downside there. And whether that becomes apparent to Democrats over the next few weeks or after Biden's already locked up the nomination, I don't know. But it's still Joe Biden. And this was a guy that, you know, whether 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 journalists were writing him off 
for dead a couple of weeks ago. I didn't see a single journalist saying this is a great candidate, right? Who's just not getting the support he needs. Nobody said that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we shall see. How do you watch this thing on TV? Well, polls close in Michigan, Mississippi, and Missouri, David, at 8 p.m. Eastern on Tuesday. That's when you'll want to be in front of MSNBC or CNN. Um, first to see if Mississippi and Missouri are going to be very quick calls. One of those where Brian Williams announces it like 10 seconds after the polls close. Uh, and second, and this would be very bad for Bernie, if Michigan is a quick call for Biden. And then mm-hmm. we could be looking at something very dire for that campaign. Coverage of all of this on the press box this Thursday. We will get into all of it and other stuff. All right, David, time for the overworked Twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Send your nominees to at the press box pod where they are always gratefully received. I regret to inform you, David, we have an all coronavirus edition of the overworked Twitter joke of the week. I mentioned this one on Bill's pod. Last week, ESPN tweeted all sporting events in Italy will take place without fans present for at least the next month due to the coronavirus outbreak in the country. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write, the Florida Panthers have been doing this for years. Or insert LA Chargers or whatever shitty team you want in there. Thanks to <laughs> Charles Pryor third. We mentioned at the top of the show, journalists self-quarantining after possible exposure to the coronavirus at CPAC. It was an overworked Twitter joke to write that coronavirus has announced that it is self-quarantining after possible exposure to Ted Cruz. Thanks to (laughs) Jake Christie and Scott Tobias. Kind of a Catskills overworked Twitter joke there. Finally, David, in this day and age, and I think every day and age, even pandemics are content. Well, Matt Zeitlin and Nathaniel Balder tipped us off on some of the predictions people are making about future coronavirus journalism. Let me give you some examples. There will be a New York Times style section article called Love in the Time of Coronavirus about how the pandemic is messing with New York scene. Here's another one. 1,500-word personal essay in Bustle titled Love in the Time of Corona about trying to find someone on a dating app to ride out the quarantine with. If you imagined a modern love column that probably has already been submitted on spec, yes. congrats. You made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. All right, Dave, let's do the notebook dump. And I want to talk to you about Bernie Sanders' online fans. We're not going to call them Bernie bros. Or as Joe Biden put it last week, Bernie brothers. That gets us into a weird place before we start. I want to have this convo because Elizabeth Warren brought it up after she exited the presidential race on Thursday. Listen to what Warren told Rachel Maddow. It's a particular problem with Sanders. It is. I mean, and it just is. It's just a factual question. Uh, And it is. And and that's something I think that that. Have you ever talked with Senator Sanders about that? I have. What was that conversation like? Uh, it was short. Uh, but, yeah, we've talked about it. But I think it's a real problem. Does he not share your view that he's responsible for the behavior of supporters? Uh, you know, I shouldn't speak for him. Mm-hmm. It's it's something he should speak for himself on. But I do think it's something that, that we need to reckon with in our political discourse mm-hmm. in particular. 
Whew. This is a difficult subject to wade into. Um, I am slightly envious of Elizabeth Warren's tact in in, in taking it on, um, mm-hmm. and both because it's a you know the, the the there are a lot of uh, Bernie Sanders voters and fans out there who are not uh, terrors online, um, and who are offended by the implication that they may, may be part of that that crew, and because there's an, a huge sea of the unknown, right? I mean, there really is an element of you know bots that are doing this or, 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 uh, you know, bad actors at least who are, who are, you know, sort of joining in a sort of memification of American politics. Um, and you know, uh, I can be, I think one can be sympathetic to Bernie Sanders, to the Sanders campaign, to Sanders supporters, but, but to, but to Bernie in particular and say, he didn't ask for any of this, right? He didn't do anything to cater to this sort of audience, even to the degree that it's, you know, an actual, these are actual people uh, making actual pseudo arguments online. And, you know, there's not a lot of other politicians that you see out there who have been, who are constantly being asked to decry things that they have no, no claim over, or at least no, no, no direct power over. Um, But I think Warren is right to the degree that this is a real thing. I mean, she, this is a thing that she and her campaign experienced um experience with a sea of snake emojis you know i mean they and 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 much 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 worse than that mm-hmm. um it's sort of hard as as much as one could be sympathetic to the sanders campaign it one has to be sympathetic to people who have been uh who have felt the felt the you know the heat of this felt the repercussions of running afoul of of bernie supporters uh directly um you know, in another context, I think everybody would be neatly aligned uh, on on the anti Sanders side, right? But because he's a very sympathetic sympathetic politician in a lot of ways, with some very very sympathetic political goals, um, you know, it's it's it, like I said, it's a, it's a difficult conversation to have. I'm, I'm not exactly sure. I'm not I'm not sure that there's a solution, but it's you know, it's a it's um, it's a conversation that that is worth having. I come down in a very similarly fuzzy place. On the one hand, all political campaigns have asshole fans. Yes. And if you don't have asshole fans, that means nobody likes you, period. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe, maybe John Delaney didn't have asshole fans. Okay, granted. <laughs> At the same time, it's not nothing. Um, you know, we saw it with the Nevada Culinary Workers Union officials getting harassed in very nasty ways after their pre-caucus scorecard dinged Bernie. Mm -hmm. Vice reporter Cameron Joseph tweeted recently that Bernie Sanders supporters have started booing reporters at rallies, right? A Bernie 2016 voter tells the Washington Post Dave Weigel, Bernie can't build a coalition because of how toxic his supporters and his surrogates are. And I don't know if you saw this tweet from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez last Wednesday. She had this whole tweet about how effective organizers online and elsewhere are welcoming. They make people feel like their movement is one that people should want to feel a part of. It felt like a subtweet to bad Bernie fans online. Sure. Saying, don't do this. Don't do this. But when we talk about this stuff, we come back to your question that you just raised. And I saw Alex Perrine raise it on Twitter, too. What's Bernie supposed to do about this? He's decried this a bunch of times. 
mm-hmm. every time it comes up, including when Warren has brought it up and said, I don't want that. He is not personally like that on the stump. Mm-mm. And, you know, if anything, he is a very courtly revolutionary, I think. But he's so so is there is there something he could do to sort of take these elements that are in his fan base and neutralize them somehow? I don't honestly know what that is. No, I mean, it's he can he can speak out in really specific instances right i mean there's there is a, there is a power to like don't say don't make this comment about you know this this situation don't don't target this person but again that sort of makes him seem like he's sort of implicit in, or complicit in it i don't know what the answer is alex Perrine did ask it in a, in a in a more eloquent way than than what i'm saying but i i just feel like um yeah, I, I just don't know i just don't know i mean unless, unless there's i mean there has to be an opportunity for him to have a you know, famous sister soldier moment with his own supporters or something like that. You know, there has to be, if he could point to the biggest Bernie Sanders subreddit and say, you know what, it's toxic, let's shut it down. You know, like something like that, I think would be meaningful. But I, I don't know, especially as we're, we just came off this conversation about him like trying to scrounge together as many votes as possible in the next 48 hours or 24 hours. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't know there's ever going to be a moment where he's comfortable enough to be like, I know I, I, I risk turning off my my most vocal supporters online in saying this but you know i mean it's it would you know it's he he's not really politically in a position to do that either from a numbers perspective now from a moral perspective and and given that his campaign is to a lot of people based in a very based in a really real morality you know maybe there's a maybe there's a case for it, but i just don't i just don't know what he says i don't know what he can really do to stop it i feel like I think that the worst actors uh, in the Bernie Bros crowd, and, I, and when I say Bernie Bros, I'm actually specifically referencing the sort of bad actors and not the like loud vo- vo- vocal vocal supporters, even vocal to a fault supporters. I think the worst actors, the bunch, are not going to be swayed by anything he says, and to the contrary, might just like flip the script on him, or might, or might just continue on even more vocally, I mean, even even more loudly with greater irony. You know, yeah, <laughs> I mean, we'll if, show him. Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're out there if you're out there like trying to like burn the internet down with Bernie Sanders memes or or whatever, just like you know, saying really cruel stuff online with Bernie Sanders as your rationale. I mean, if he tells you not to, why not just up the up the ante and just you know, if he doesn't want you to, then that gives you an excuse to be even worse, um, and just say the exact same things because now you're making everybody mad. I mean, um, I mean, there, he he has been. I mean, and and not to. I don't know how how much correlation you want to draw here. I mean, he has been on Chapo, Chapo Trap House, Bernie Sanders, that is, and 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 I don't know if that's the target as opposed to some sort of like big subreddit. If he needs to take his, you know, plead directly to them, because because honestly, I mean, they're they're defensively comic and 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 you know political, um, but they but a lot of the things that are said on that show are the things that are repeated. Uh, or at least the, you know the tone, the idea of which is, is, is sort of becomes the the loudest voice in the room when it comes to this sort of Bernie bro mentality online. I don't I don't know if I don't I don't know if he needs to go on there and say something. I don't know that he has to say anything. That's that's the thing. Um, yeah. Are they and are they aren't they a, are a member of the category you just talked about? Are they going to change because Bernie Sanders said to stop talking that way? Absolutely not. No. No, no. It's I like mean, when it's like when Donald Trump and, and and I don't want to draw any kind of false equivalency between those, but it's like you know, 
there Donald Donald Trump would at times during his campaign would come out and, and say, you know, I, I don't support this sort of thing or that sort of thing or whatever. And you would see that the very worst people, the people he was, you know, theoretically talking about were just like, yeah, he had to he had to say that. But that just means he secretly loves us, you know, and, and there's just no mm, that's there's right. No, there's no reasoning the with some audiences, you know, and I and I and but again, to put that on Bernie Sanders lap. I mean, I'm not. Why should he have to go out there and, and decry something that he does not feel personally responsible for, and especially when it won't do anything to to change it? He, um, I've seen a ton of candidates on Bill Maher's show. And, yeah, you know, Bill Maher gets in trouble every week, including this week, talking about Chris Matthews mm -hmm. and why he got you know let go at MSNBC. So, and I'm not sure that Amy Klobuchar, you know, needs to you know make a public apology about being on real time so i i just don't yeah I, I i that and i think that's that's the crux of it here is what do you, what does he do and again maybe this is all for naught at this point in the campaign but it's it's an interesting question the other thing i just just repeat not that this needs repeating but bernie sanders had a rally on friday in phoenix and a man unfurled a flag with a swastika on it at Bernie Sanders' rally. So we can talk about angry Bernie fans online, but there is a lot of hate out in the universe that doesn't mm -hmm. have anything to do with that. And a lot greater hate, I would think, I think I can say pretty confidently out in the universe doesn't have anything to do with that. Yeah. And a great reminder when people are getting mad at Bernie fans. David, you and I always like to talk about stories from the book world. Mm -hmm. This one caught our eye. Ronan Farrow went after his publisher, Hachette, for agreeing to publish the memoirs of his father, Woody Allen. Pharaoh is, of course, the author of Catch and Kill, the best-selling book about sexual assault. And one of the cases he wrote about in the book was that of his sister, Dylan Pharaoh, who accused Woody Allen of sexual assault in 1992. Now, Pharaoh learned that a different imprint of his publisher, the Hachette Book Group, was bringing out Allen's memoir in April. And Pharaoh's argument was, wait a minute, you made money from my book about sexual assault and abuse, and now you are publishing the memoir from the accused abuser. Pharaoh said he no longer wanted to work with the publisher. Employees at Hachette sided with him and walked out last Thursday, a number of them anyway, demanding Hachette cancel the publication of Allen's book. On Friday, Hachette said, okay, we're canceling it. Full disclosure, The Ringer has a publishing agreement with Grand Central, a division of Hachette. First off, as a former editor and art director in the book world, <laughs> explain this for me. What's the relationship between Little Brown, yeah. which is the Hachette imprint that published Pharaoh's book, and Grand Central Publishing, which was going to publish Woody Allen's book, and why is that relationship important here? Well, they're part of the same parent company, and there's a there's a large degree to the uh, to which the sort of consolidation of book publishing companies does play a role in this. I don't think it necessarily plays a really significant political role, but um, it's not hard to imagine that if these were just absolutely separate sort of in, independent publishers, that there's a difference between the walkout that we saw uh, in response to this publication at Hachette and like. You know, if this had been a if this had been thirty people walking out of a small publisher, right? I mean, there or, or you know a smaller publisher that 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 might have been a more 
internally politically manageable situation. That's to say nothing of the morals uh, of the of the situ- of the larger situation. But there's uh, book publishing has become increasingly consolidated in just a couple of places, and um, these it's just these big monoliths that are filled up with all these separate imprints that nominally act with editorial independence. Now, um, you know th- there have been certainly have been instances in which editorial independence does not necessarily mean uh, you know, real independence. Um, there've been publishing giant publishing houses that have rules prohibiting their imprints forbidding against each other on books. Um, Mm -hmm. there, I mean, and that's, I mean, you can, all the market implications are pretty straightforward in that one. Um, and there are, you know, a lot of, a lot of obviously shared central services and, 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 and this is a great example of how, um, a writer with real significant power, and Ronan Farrow is as significant as, as he's been in our, in, you know, in the media world for the past couple of years. It's certainly, I mean, there there are more writers who are more power, the writers who are more established and powerful than him, who have probably a more direct line to Michael Peach. Um, someone with that kind of influence can really just change, uh, you know, the way. I mean, a, a, a very significant publishing decision. Now, why was this book published? I mean, what, I mean, what, how did we even get to this point? I think is a sort of more interesting question. Um, and just just to back up there, just to clarify something you said. So these are two imprints under the same parent company. Mm-hmm. And the initial reasoning here is just because Little Brown published Ronan Farrow's book, that doesn't mean that Grand Central Publishing, another imprint, can't publish Woody Allen's memoir because they are at least somewhat independent of each other. That's well, sure. the and thinking here, the, how we got to this point. I mean, look at it this way. Like every publisher, I mean, starting like 15 years ago, whatever, 20 years ago, every every big publishing house, and there were more of them then than there are now, but every big publishing house started coming out with their own like conservative publishing arm, right? It was Sentinel Publishing or Crown Forum or like whatever. Um, and part of the explanation there was, well, we know these books are going to sell, right? I mean, these people like, you know, the, the ant cultures of the world will self-publish and sell a million books with or without us. Um, Bill O'Reilly, all these people who rush Limbaugh, of course. Um, so they, but they, but the, but to put them in their own, under their own little banner, one gives them a sort of cohesion and a and a and a you know it's it helps with selling and all that kind of stuff, but also it distances them from the rest of the publishing company, mm-hmm. right? You don't have you don't have to say we're publishing this liberal called called to arms about environmentalism. Oh, and also, do you want to buy you know ten things I hate about liberals by Bill O'Reilly? Um, <laughs> It's it, it you know they're they're they they sort of silo it off. Um, now it's I mean and so yeah these are separate publishers with com- I mean and no one and no one would go no one would argue except in ex- incredibly extreme examples nobody would take issue with what somebody on was doing at another imprint. Um, this is obviously we're in a different landscape now where you could where I mean where. There is a sort of moral responsibility that every employee feels that their that their employer, as big as they may be, owes them. And um, yeah. I think there's a lot of legitimacy and, to that. And it's interesting in this one how it seems to be a have just sort of what we might call direct cognitive dissonance. Right. Mm-hmm. Here, book number one is about exposing sexual abuse and assault. Yeah. In even in this particular alleged case. Book number two is by the guy who allegedly did it, right? That's a little different than we published Ann Coulter's book and we published Michael Moore's book, right? That just that just feels a little different. I do agree with you that the interesting thing here, at least the most obvious thing here, is a writer using his power, 
right? Mm-hmm. Ronan Farrow sold a ton of books. Hachette would love to publish Ronan Farrow's next book, presumably. They are actually and publishing his, through a separate imprint, are publishing his first novel this fall. So, Oh, there we go. See, David is up on the book news. So, essentially, he is saying, I'm going to use my power as best I can within this publishing house to bring about this outcome that I want. That's that's number one. The bigger point, and a lot of people got this to on Twitter, was does canceling Woody Allen's memoir, and this is canceling in the book publishing sense, not the larger cultural sense. Yeah. Does canceling Woody Allen's memoir portend something about books that are written by bad people? I'll read you some tweets here. Joe Hagan, journalist and author of the Jan Winner biography, Sticky Fingers, writes, seems to me there are a lot of valuable books by morally questionable or even reprehensible figures that we would not want banned or burned or squelched in advance. If we knew every cent of every author going back to the Greeks, probably half the library. Novelist uh, Stephen King tweets, the Hachette decision to drop the Woody Allen book makes me very uneasy. It's not him. I don't give a damn about Mr. Allen. It's who gets muzzled next that worries me. Stephanie Zacherik says, hate me if you must, but I'm not sure the Woody Allen memoir cancellation is a great thing for anyone who cares about art or due process. Zacherik is, of course, a film critic. So is this, is there any sense that this is one of those decisions that's justifiable on its own merits, but potentially sets a weird precedent going forward for books? I mean, you can certainly make the economic argument, right? This book is going to come out one way or the other, be it self-published on Amazon or or just available through international publishers and, and people who want it are, are largely going to be able to get it. And it's just, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that anything, the only difference is that, you know, Hachette, your grant, you know, U.S. won't be making their cut. Um, I, I don't, I think from a, the moral argument is actually really interesting when it comes to books because it's not, the, even though a lot of, publishers a lot of imprints have identities they have fantastic editors they have you know incredible publishers um to the average consumer there's not a lot of there's no framing for the book right this isn't like yes we published a woody allen essay in the new yorker but like there were all these hands that were in it that are listed in the masthead and we're all taking responsibility for what's coming out you know i mean there's there there is certainly a feeling with a memoir especially the way that this one was pitched that and and looking at his previous books, Woody Allen's previous books, that that would, he do feel like to a certain extent he's getting a soapbox more so than, you know, this is an this is a controversial work of scholarship or something that need that the world needs to see even if it's <laughs> even 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 if it's even if it's problematic or whatever. Um, yeah. Yes. And I also say that book publishers have this thing. I think sometimes, and I'm not, I don't know if it's this, the, in this case so much, but just generally speaking of one thing they often say is, well, we're just putting this out there, mm-hmm. right? This is, this is just, sometimes it's in a, this is an important, if controversial work and it needs to be seen. Sometimes it's just like, like when they get in these fact checking messes and they say, well, you know, it, it, how it wasn't incumbent upon us to check the facts to make sure the book we published was right. Right. <laughs> right. We're just, we're just, this is an author's book, you know? So, so I think, Sometimes there can be more within publishing, more responsibility taking about what you're publishing, because if the New York Times had excerpted Woody Allen's memoir, the New York Times would be making a decision to wrap its arms around that. Right. right? Doesn't mean they agree with Woody Allen, but they are. There's a certain level of responsibility. If New York Magazine did the same thing, same. Right. And it strikes me as this is something about book publishers saying you can't 
you can't completely doesn't mean you can never publish a controversial book mm. doesn't mean you can every author has to cannot have done xyz but it just means that there is a certain responsibility in publishing a book y- yes and there's also but, some, go ahead no no that's that's what i was saying i i think that we also have to point out that there's something very specific in about woody allen here and 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 i think without going into any of the specifics of what he's been accused of and everything else um the, you know the book publishing world is a very new york centric sort of old you know like old new york sort yep. of place and woody allen has a has a very specific place in that and it's not just new york actually it's there's a bigger issue which is hachette is a french company and that their parent company uh is still pushing ahead with the publication of this book so it's totally feasible that i mean and judging from my experience in publishing knowing nothing about this case this could have been one of those instances where the French publisher decided to buy it and just sort of, you know, handed it off to the American publisher and said, you know, we would really encourage you guys to say yes to this. Um, and and mm-hmm. it, so it could be a bigger thing. But Woody Allen, I mean, but going back to Woody Allen, I mean, it's it's not you. Ha- you have to be honest enough. I mean, look at the situation. Grand Central Publishing would not be publishing, you know, if I did it by Harvey Weinstein. You know, I mean, they they would not be publishing a, a, a similar book by someone else who had been who had been uh, uh, accused of or convicted of crimes during the Me Too era, right? It's Woody. There's something specific about Woody Allen, about the art that he's produced, about people's assumption of his innocence. I don't know what it is, but um, there does seem to be, um, you know, something that separates him from the rest of the pack. And I think that the reason why the walkout in this case was so significant was so effective. And why the pushback from Ronan Farrow and everything else was so effective was because I think that there was there there was an element of blindness from the people who are making these decisions to the way that Woody Allen is sort of sorted in you know the modern cultural mind, right? Versus being sorted the way he's been sorted in Manhattan, right? Over the last twenty years, completely agree. Uh, what was interesting is the Times reported last May that at least four publishers had passed on this memoir which was submitted to them almost in, in the time set, almost in completed form. Mm-hmm. So somebody in New York publishing was making that distinction you're talking about. Yeah. But not everybody. Well, and this, listen, this uh, was, this was, it's it, according to the news reports, by the time that piece came out, it had already been purchased or it had already been acquired by, by Hachette and Grand Central Publishing. Um, presumably all these other people had turned it off, turned it down prior to that. I mean, that would, <laughs> that would make linear sense, but, um, the fact that they acquired it then and only announced it now with a month before publication date is more evidence that they, I mean, they are aware of the, of the, of the significance here. They are aware of the problem of, of the potential, potentially problematic nature of it. Um, they were hoping to sort of just like slide it in as a Friday news dump or whatever. And then, because there is, I mean, there is, they are correct in that there is going to be an audience for it. Right. I mean, people are going to, people would buy the book. Yeah. There are um, still audiences for his movies. Absolutely. Um, there are definitely there are definitely many instances where big t- where big potentially best selling books, especially by famous authors, are sort of acquired and published within shockingly short amount short amounts of time. Um, they kind of go from announcement to publication in the blink of an eye. But this was, doesn't seem to be one of those cases. It seems like it's been in some level of production for a long time. And um, so yeah, I mean they 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 on some level were aware of it too. I just I, but they they were not aware aware of it. Or they we're not clear about that enough to know what was about to happen. I mean, I mean, to, to predict what their employees and, and writers would, how they would react. David, I want to transfer ungainfully to Brian Williams, 
of MSNBC. <laughs> I sometimes listen to cable news in my car on the Sirius radio. Mm-hmm. I was making my way home from the Ringer office on Thursday when I flipped on Williams' show, The 11th Hour. Williams had Mara Gay from the New York Times editorial board on. Oh, no. He, would, he, meaning Williams, was trying to be funny and talk to the kids as he is wont to do. And then this happened. You see it as a possibility if he wants to spend a billion bucks beating this guy, he could do it. Absolutely. Um, somebody tweeted recently that um, actually with the money he spent, he could have given every American a million dollars. I've got it. Let's put it up yeah. on the screen. It, when I read it uh, tonight on social media, it kind of all became clear. Bloomberg spent $500 million on ads. U.S. population, $327 million. Uh, don't tell us if you're ahead of us on the math. He could have given each American $1 million and have had lunch money left over. It's an incredible way of putting it. It's an incredible way of putting it. It's true. It's disturbing. It does, it does suggest, you know, what we're talking about here, which is there, there's too much money in politics. Now, just to do the math, if you're not looking at this calculation, that means that Bloomberg could give a dollar and change <laughs> to every American, not $1 million to every American by those calculations. <laughs> there's so many funny parts of this. One is Brian Williams trying to just be part of the Twitter conversation, you know? Yeah. When I was looking at this, I couldn't believe it. And the other thing is, he admits that he kind of, when he looked at it, he didn't, he couldn't imagine the math being correct. But somehow, after he looked at it and his producers looked at it and everybody got it to the point where it could appear on the screen at MSNBC, he was both convinced of the math and amazed. That Mike Bloomberg could give everyone one million dollars. <laughs> well, um, that sure puts Andrew Yang's campaign to shame if that were true. The uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, listen, we will all, I'm sure, if we're lucky, we will all live long enough to someday become a meme ourselves. Um, Mara Gay we is, might have done it on this show. Yeah, I know. Jim's out there doing it for us right now. Mara Gay is an incredibly brilliant writer. Um, I hope this is not their defining achievement. Uh, you know, for, Brian, <laughs> for, for Brian Williams' part, I'm not sure that it matters a whole lot, both from, you know, based on what he's been through and sort of what his station is. But, the, but um, I don't even know what to say. I mean, we all need something to dunk on every once in a while, and this was just just such easy pickings. I don't, I don't even, <laughs> I don't even know. I mean, I was, I was laughing so hard the first time I saw it, and somehow with the passage of time, it just got. It, I just sort of have gotten a little bit sad about the whole thing. I'm not sure. It's, it's a, uh, it, you know, this is it is what it is, right? There's, it is what it is. That is true. We can agree on that. I'll say this about Brian Williams. I'll just I'll just broaden this baby out right here. I watch MSNBC on election nights. That's my preferred go-to. CNN just the whole CNN set just seems a little too large and sterile for me. I don't yes. know. I don't know why I don't like. There's something I don't like aesthetically about watching CNN. When I turn on like CNN of, on election night, I feel like I don't have the HD settings on my TV in, in yeah, the correct mode. It's just somehow like that's kind of, it. Yeah, there's something sort of itchy about watching it. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just old eyes or something. Yeah, it's it's like you're watching the original Star Trek. That's what the bridge of the Enterprise looks like. <laughs> yes. The, like the old Captain Kirk one. Yeah. 
Um, so I watch MSNBC. I am amazed at how Brian Williams, who not that long ago was tied up in this incredible fabulism scandal, just kind of sailed back into our hearts. Mm-hmm. And he did it quietly. He's on. He is on the 11th hour, a.k.a. 11 p.m. Eastern time on MSNBC. And he was exiled to cable as part of this decision. But the funny thing about that is cable to me is where it's at, right? NBC, like Lester Holtz, NBC doesn't go live every election night. So if you're talking about big moments of the election, not to mention the daily stuff, and as we know, there's tons of news every day, Brian Williams is kind of the default big anchor again. I don't know if when he was removed from NBC Nightly News, whoever made this pitch to him was making it in good faith, right? I mean, you come on over to MSNBC, but but certainly... Uh, it would have been really hard to imagine at that point in time that his seat would have, I mean, this, this, his his seat at MSNBC would would have been a higher profile position than the one he was he was being forced out of. Uh, but it does feel like that. It does. I mean, it it definitely does. Because in the old days, you know, he was he was in the Lester Holt seat, and like Keith Olbermann and the cable crew would have all the big moments of the election, so they felt more present. But and and you're right. When they announced it, I thought, oh, that eleven o'clock on you know that's that's pretty late, right? But he's on, of course, on election nights. He's on in prime time, and he kind of sailed quietly into this role, and then all of a sudden, he comes up because he got undone by a tweet, and undone by like math. Just very funny to me. <laughs> all right, Dave. Time for David Shoemaker guesses a strain pun headline. Yeah. Tuesday's headline about an annoying bird was neighbor's opera loving parrot, a pain in the arias. <laughs> Listener Matt Painter says the headline should have been a pain in the nest, a pain in the nest. I, there's a certain elegance about that that I like. Paul Matwichuk thought it should be a mina annoyance as in mina bird. Today's pun headline, David, comes from Freestyle. It's from the Sydney Morning Herald in Australia, official country of the press box. Did you see the news that Netflix hired writer-director Taika Waititi, who's great, to do two Roald Dahl series for the streaming service? Two Roald Dahl series. Yes. Now, I want you to forget about Waititi and his name and any puns there. Okay. This headline is about the money Netflix is paying for a Roald Dahl series. Oh or I gosh. guess it could be a general statement about how awesome it is to have a Roald Dahl series. What was the Sydney Morning Herald strained pun headline? Uh, I feel like this should be really easy. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, James and the Giant Peach, BFG. Like, what? How deep are we going to go here? What if, um, what if I said it was about the author's name specifically? Uh oh, a rule. Uh, doll, um, d- oh god. Um, I don't know. Uh, r- uh roll. I'm thinking like r- rolling in. <laughs> mm-hmm. Rolling in money. Uh, r- uh, roll, rolled. Uh, rolled. Sin- a synonym for money, kind of a uh, cash, old, uh, uh, doll, uh, um, duh, uh, gosh. Mm. Think of a think of your favorite Simoleons. pretzel. 
your your favorite what? pretzel manufacturer? Uts. Uh, <laughs> Uts. All I can think of is Wetzel's pretzels. <laughs> I know that's bad. Who makes pretzels? Why can't I think of this? Here we go, David. Roald Gold. Oh yes. Roald Gold. Wow. 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 That's a good headline. That's pretty good. That's good. I like Sydney that. Morning Herald. We love it. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Research by Erica Cervantes and Chris Almeida. Production magic by Jim Cunningham. We're back Thursday, ladies and gents, to discuss the Michigan results and all the results from Tuesday's voting. Uh, David, I also want to talk to you about coronavirus and the press. Mm-hmm. And also about all the noise you're hearing online about Biden's health and stamina. I think we yeah. owe people a segment about that. Plus, of course, more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See you, Brian. this for me sure nobody likes you no yes what do you think of that don't say don't make this comment about you know this this situation don't don't target this person i come down in a very similarly fuzzy place Mm -hmm. nobody likes you period (laughs) this is a difficult subject to wade into am i wrong Blah, blah blah nobody likes you period i don't even know what to say i mean nobody likes you full stop um what do you think of that yeah it's not misguided no mm-hmm. david nobody said that oh my god Whew. <laughs> <laughs>